This holiday season, don't miss out on your chance to stock up on your favorite supplements during the Black Friday Cyber Monday sale at my online Fullscript Supplement Dispensary, drhoffmanstore.com. November 25th through 29th, five days only, get 10% off and free shipping on my entire inventory of top supplements at drhoffmanstore.com. We stock only the highest quality supplements, some of which are very hard to find elsewhere. The very same supplements I prescribe to my patients and take myself. It's the safest and most convenient way to purchase my curated supplements. Buying through Fullscript offers fast, free shipping and optional refill reminders via text or email. It's safe, secure, and includes world-class customer service. Reinvest in your wellness goals with savings on supplements. Just go to drhoffmanstore.com for 10% off and free shipping for five days only from November 25th through 29th. That's drhoffmanstore.com. drhoffmanstore.com. If chocolate is your weakness, the real chocolate decadence of Flava Naturals Performance Chocolate can be your strength. I've been searching high and low for cocoa products that deliver meaningful amounts of healthful flavanols with great flavor and minimal sugar. So I'm thrilled to have found Flava Naturals. Extensive research demonstrates the remarkable benefits of daily cocoa flavanols on brain and heart function, including a recent Harvard study showing a 27% reduction in cardiovascular death. But you need to eat five or more ordinary dark chocolate bars every day to match the flavanols consumed in most of these studies. Flava Naturals Performance Dark Chocolate Cocoa Powder and beverages deliver five to nine times the flavanols of typical dark chocolate. Their secret is sourcing premium, high flavanol cocoa beans and processing them naturally. The result is decadent dark chocolate with the flavanol levels needed to fuel brain and cardio performance. I use it every day. For more information and to order, just go to flavanaturals.com. That's flavanaturals.com. Welcome to today's Intelligent Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ronald Hoffman. As you know, I've been writing about uh, the Eat Lancet uh, program uh, where back in 2019, if you recall, the prestigious international medical journal Lancet issued a call for curbing meat consumption. And the Eat Lancet Commission invoked the alleged health benefits of reducing intake of animal protein and claimed also somewhat ambitiously, that plant-based eating could also help save the planet. The food industry and agribusiness piled on and applauded it as it contemplated market opportunities for novel plant-based meat substitutes. And so there's been a, a great convergence of powerful interests, big food, big pharma, big medicine, big media, big science, big agriculture, big finance. They're all coalescing around the coalescing around the proposition that a plant-based diet is the salvation of humanity, that it'll prevent disease at the same time saving the planet from climate calamity. So into the fray comes uh, today's guest, uh, she is uh, Jane Buxton. Uh, I'm talking to Jane over there in the UK. She's UK based, so through the miracles of modern technology, we're recording this podcast. Uh, Jane is an investigative writer, and she's written uh, a great book entitled 
the great plant-based con. Why eating a plants-only diet won't improve your health or save the planet. Uh, it's an amazing work because she's armed with 1,463 references and nearly 500 pages of uh, very, very detailed text. And so I want to welcome Jane to the program. Thanks for joining us, Jane. Where, where are you? Uh, where are you located tonight? Thank you uh, for having me. I am in London, in Wimbledon, actually. It's Indeed, the southwest of London. Yeah. All right. Uh, and so we got about a you know five six hour time difference. And thanks for joining us from over there. But you sound crystal clear. Uh, so, uh, Jane, what prompted you to uh, do the investigation behind the great plant based con? Well, you have mentioned one of the prompts, uh, actually, when you mentioned the, the Eat Lancet study, because it was in 2019 that I became extremely acutely aware of the uptick in plant-based messaging and the fact that, that that message you talk about, about, you know, plant-based will save your health, save the planet, was becoming ubiquitous. And Eat Lancet was one place it was coming from, and it received an enormous amount of attention, that, that report and that planetary diet. The other thing that received a lot of attention at the same time was uh, a movie called The Game Changers, which you probably know. Um, and both of those things really um i think intensified that that messaging and i was very aware at the time that that much of the messaging was supported by facts i'll call them facts facts that were different to the facts that i understood and so that tipped me off to the fact that there was quite a lot of misinformation uh infecting the debate and i wanted to unearth that and so i i decided to plunge whole you know headlong into an, a proper book Okay, and, and your book it seems to be divided into four basic parts. Uh, the first part uh, asks the question, are plant-based diets better for your health? And the second part addresses, will plant-based diets save the planet? Are they beneficial for global warming, climate change, what have you? Uh, the third is a kind of a deep dive on the forces behind advocacy for a plant-based diet. And they're somewhat uh, insidious, uh, according to your analysis. And, and finally, uh, you offer recommendations on, on how we should eat that are science-based and also based on principles <laughs> of sound agriculture. So mm -hmm. uh, so let's start with uh, this this concept because they're trying to hook the two concepts together. They're trying to say, look, plant-based diets are better for us health-wise. And, oh, by the way, uh, you can attain uh, virtue uh, by doing your part to save the planet. So how can you lose with that proposition? Well, how can you? Exactly. It's a, it's a wonderful thing. I, I uh, think the, the doubling up of the argument, so attaching... Um, the health arguments to the environmental arguments gives gives advocates a kind of really handy double-handed trick, which we, you know, when we were when I used to work in business, we used to call it the um, uh, the assumptive close. So what I'm to do is to say, even if you're not totally on board with the the fact that it might be better for your health, oh, but we were. You know, it's better for the environment, so we may as well. And then the reverse is true. So it creates this really tight, locked-in argument, which I picked. And that's what I set out to do, was to unpick those, unhook them. Indeed. So uh, you know, in, in a detailed analysis, uh, I, I have here 
in front of me uh, something that just came across uh, the wires, and but it's not new. Uh, the headline here is red meat is not a health risk. New study slams years of shoddy research. And I think you keep up with things. So you're aware uh, that the University of Washington's Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation uh, has done a very, very extensive review. They've scrutinized decades of research on red meat consumption mm-hmm. and its links to various health outcomes. And their findings mostly dispel any concerns about eating red meat. They, they do not find uh, linkages to the major diseases, cancer, cardiovascular disease, and so on. And it's not surprising that that's what they find, because uh, there have been previous studies that have found the same thing. So the, the most um, uh, impressive and, and kind of influential one came, also came out in 2019. A lot happened in 2019. Um, and that was the Annals of Internal Medicine, uh, five papers which dispelled uh, those links between red meat and disease. And there have been subsequent ones as well. And it isn't surprising to me that we keep discovering this because all of the original research that that purported to show the links between meat and disease were Uh, mostly epidemiological in nature, mostly with very low, low risk factors, mostly beset by all of the things that do beset epidemiology in the the field of nutrition, such Mm as being based on uh, food frequency questionnaires, which are often extremely inaccurate. So, and then you have the confounding variables and all of those mean that really any, any findings that have been reported should be taken with a great big pinch of salt. And I think that that's what this, this study that you're, you're talking about is saying. And, and it appears that the final coffin nail in the Eat Lancet uh, health proposition comes to us from a study that just came out uh, this month in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition. And, you know, I avidly read that journal mm-hmm. uh, and I open it up with great excitement to see an article entitled Association Between Adherence to the Eat Lancet Diet and Risk of Cancer and Cardiovascular Outcomes in something called the Nutrinet Santé Cohort, which is a study out of France. Yeah. Uh, and <laughs> the authors somewhat disappointedly report contrary to our hypothesis. I guess they thought that they would see major improvements in the health of people when they follow this very low meat regime, uh, they say, contrary to our hypothesis, our results documented significant association between adherence to the Eat Lancet diet and the incidence of cancer only in some subgroups and no, and I repeat, no association with cardiovascular disease. Mm-hmm. They were bummed. <laughs> they were. And those subgroups were beset. If I recall that study, they were beset by uh, other health issues. So the confounding factors of what were driving driving the the, uh, the um, disease in those people. They were obese or they had diabetes uh, or um, otherwise were unhealthy people. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I think that's a fascinating study. And again, I'm... I'm not surprised. The author might have been surprised, but um, uh, those of us who have, who looked at Eat Lancet's diet when it came out are not surprised. Um, it it's well known that it's been critiqued on the level of nutrition because it is failing um, in a number of angles and on a number of nutrients. Um, but it's also um, 
even by Eat Lancet, at the, even by their own admission, it's not a diet that's suitable for, I think they list children, babies, teenagers, pregnant women, older people, frail people, sick people. You know, so there's this very tight mm-hmm. group of people in the middle who may, you, who they say should be eating this diet and can healthily do so. But the fact that it has all of these restrictions for these other groups in the population should have set alarms bells ringing anyway, initially. And when there there are studies that suggest that meat is bad for you, that meat uh, is associated with cancer risks, is associated with uh, even some studies that show that meat is associated with uh, diabetes, uh, even when we know that very low-carb diets that are actually meat-centric can be helpful for diabetes. W- when you mention the word confounding, w- what are you talking about there? And, and how does confounding uh, distort some of these observational and epidemiological studies? So, yeah, but a simplest way to put it and what we, uh, what we generally see is that when people say, for instance, that a plant-based diet is relatively better for health and they can, they're able to prove to, to show those associations, it's very likely that the, the individuals who are eating that plant-based diet are also following other healthful behaviors. And so that will improve the result for the, for the diet when in fact, it may be the fact that they exercise more, they smoked less, or they, they, they were thin, you know, they, they, they didn't have visceral body fat. So all of those will pollute or confound the results. And the same is true when you get associations between meat eating and disease. It's not necessarily the meat that's going to be causing that disease. It could be high levels of carbohydrate and fried food consumption, the, mm-hmm. the, the stuff that surrounds the meat. It could be that those people are generally um, prone to more unhealthy behaviors because historically eating less meat has been linked with healthy behaviors. So there's all that bias which infects the results. And, and very few of these studies uh, distinguish between uh, processed meat and unprocessed meat. So the people who are eating uh, uh, sausage or what you folks across the pond would refer to as bangers. Bangers. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, the very you know highly processed meat with lots of additives, uh, poor quality meat, uh, meat that is basically a, a derived from corn-fed sources, which is not rich in omega-3 fatty acids, um, that that may be part of it. But then there are actually some studies that relatively vindicate even processed meat lately. Absolutely. Absolutely. There was a review by um, Maria Guasfere, and I'm sure I mispronounced her name, but um, uh, one of the lead authors who said that most of the studies that did find these links between uh, processed meat and, and disease were beset by all of these confounding factors, very weak methodologies, very inconsistent publication bias, of, you know, the full range of, of weaknesses right. you can find in a study. And we have to remember that the big study that really um, sought to establish the link between processed meat and cancer was the WHO study from 2015. And even that study couldn't find very much of the link. So it was a really small risk factor of about 0.18%, I think it was, which really is, if you look at that in terms of um, actual risk 
so absolute risk, you find that your overall risk, say, of getting colon cancer might be 5.6% as an ordinary human being. Eating an extra five slices of bacon every day for your entire life will raise that ostensibly to 6.6%. It's a really tiny, tiny risk increase, um, but it's blown up and called a 20% risk increase. We, you know, and the media picks up on us, and right. that's that's how we end up where we are today. And, and it might be that uh, uh, 999 people would have to avoid eating bacon. Uh, so that one person might uh, avoid the risk of of uh, colon cancer, or, or maybe That's even right. the numbers might be even more astronomical than that. Yeah. Um, okay. Let, let, there's lots of detail in the book on the health argument um, that goes against the grain, or goes against the eat lancet uh, plant based concept. But let's switch gears and let's look at the environmental consequences because they're they're making a lot of that these days. They're calling for lower methane admissions. Uh, we know that uh, cows uh, erectations, it's actually not cow uh, flatulence that uh, releases mm-hmm. methane into the world, uh, but that that is causing um, a greenhouse effect. And also uh, that uh, uh, the the that uh, uh, animal based uh, agriculture uh, is very high on the food chain, very energy intensive, very water intensive, and therefore we should be uh, eating more vegetables. And uh, the Eat Lancet report actually calls for, I think it's seven grams of animal protein per day. It's just seven Mm -hmm. grams. People, you know, over there in the UK, people know grams, but seven grams is, is about what you could hold in the palm of your hand. In the palm of your hand, yeah. 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 So so they're calling for that on the primarily on the basis of it um of its impact on the environment. And what you'll notice is most most of the studies that try to demonstrate that animal foods are very bad for the environment always do that relative to say calories or kilos of product or whatever so it makes um it makes uh, animal source foods and meat in particular look very very bad what is rarely done is to look at the emissions per quality of protein per grams of bioavailable full complete protein, for instance, or per uh, a range of uh, nutrients. And when you do that, when you start to compare emissions to nutrient quality, you start to get a very, very different picture. And, uh, you know, there are lots of other ways that the uh, methane impact has been exaggerated. I'm not saying that that um, livestock doesn't have some impact. All foods have some impact. Every single thing we do in life has some impact on the environment and and creates emissions. But the the emissions associated with livestock have been exaggerated on a number of fronts. You know, for one thing, they're they're calculated based on a metric called GWP 100, which Many scientists now, including some from the LEAP University uh, at, at Oxford University here, believe should be replaced by GWP star. Now, because and they believe that because the current warming effect of livestock is being exaggerated by three to four times by this GWP 100. It's not scientifically accurate to reflect the real impact of methane from cows in a full ecological 
called farm setting. So, and there are other there are other ways that the exaggeration takes place. You know, nobody accounts for the sequestration that happens when we can draw down carbon from the sky um, by by use of managed grazing, properly managed grazing, um, and there's also this this tendency to use the global number to apply to places like the United States or the United Kingdom, when actually the the cattle that are raised in those places bear no resemblance to the cattle being raised in the rest in some other parts of the world. So as, as you probably know, the emissions numbers might be 14.5% is the official number from the FAO for global picture. But, you know, for cattle in the States, it's 2% of emission. Hmm. Here in the UK, it's about 5.8%. And that's before you account for all the other sequestration effects. So there's so many ways that it's blown out of proportion. Um, and, that, and that's doing a lot of harm to the debate. Is it reasonable to expect that if we went with these recommendations that uh, it would make uh, have a big impact on the rising sea levels, on the uh, increasing temperatures, or is that just a, a mere fraction, small fraction, of uh, what uh, uh, pollutants and uh, carbon uh, release and methane release from industrial processes is doing to our, to our climate? It's, it is. You're correct. I think it's a small, uh, a small fraction of it. I, I liken it to rearranging the deck chairs. Really, uh, I don't think it's going to impact um, the the climate in any really significant way. It may do initially, um, but a, a leading climate scientist here, uh, Professor Miles Allen, has also has warned us that if we were to eradicate the methane from all livestock, we would impact global temperatures by a small amount, some some percentages of, of degrees over the next 10 years. But he said, if we don't get to grips with the, the other causes, the fossil fuel-driven climate change, pretty much nothing else matters. And he has said that everything else is irrelevant. So yeah, we, we uh, we need to be focusing on the right things. And I think that livestock becomes a distraction from focusing on the right things. And aren't there ways to mitigate the methane release from these farm animals? Because uh, it's thought that uh, one of the reasons for uh, methane emission, to put it to put it delicately from these animals is because they're fed uh, unnatural feeds that if they were actually uh, pastured uh, and raised on, on grass, as is natural, uh, that this would um, uh, literally change the composition of the, the cow burps. Well, I don't know if so much that the actual cow burps themselves would change. There are other things that change that, um, such as if you, you know, it's being, uh, being experimented with um, uh, put, uh, including uh, seaweed in mm-hmm. feed. Yeah, I've heard that. You reduce yeah. it by 10, 20 percent. So that on that front, yes, you can ch- change the actual emission of the methane. But the other thing that happens really when you put cows onto pasture and you manage them holistically and in what's called you know holistic planned grazing mob grazing whatever the term is that you want to use if you're managing them you are drawing down that methane in the form of carbon into the soil so you're extracting the carbon from the 
from, or you're enabling, to be more accurate, you're enabling the soil to be better at extracting that carbon. So it's, it's creating a more circular, um, virtuous cycle, as it were, by managing the, the cattle properly. Okay, so those are the first uh, two contentions behind uh, the uh, effort uh, to uh, literally mandate uh, a plant-based diet because there are many forces aligned to do this. So, you know, not just, uh, you know, consumer uh, appeal, you know, by this uh, impossible burger, but there's actually uh, regulations, subsidies, mandates, uh, pressures uh, that will uh, coalesce uh, to push this agenda. And in, in part two, I want to take a look at, at who's behind this. And you've done some great uh, investigative uh, writing uh, on that subject uh, in your book, uh, The Great Plant-Based Con, Why Eating a Plants-Only Diet Won't Improve Your Health or Save the Planet. Um, you know, we often ask the question, uh, if I get the Latin right, uh, qui bono, who benefits, right? Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, I don't know if that's the correct uh, pronunciation, but, uh, you know, who's behind this? And we're going to take a look at that, pull the curtain back a little bit, as you did in your book. Uh, our guest is Jane Buxton, uh, author of The Great Plant-Based Con. Uh, Jane, is there a website also where we can find out about your book? Yep, there's my name, Jane Reese Buxton, www.janereesebuxton.com, you, or you can just type in the, uh, the name of the book, and that's also linked to the website. So. Okay, for our spell-challenged uh, individuals, it's B-U-X-T-O-N, and it's Jane, J-A-Y-N-E, correct? That's right. All right, thank you. I'm Dr. Ronald Hoffman. We'll be right back with part two of today's podcast. This is Intelligent Medicine.